Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we'll be revisiting interviews with the Women's Resource Center and Dr. Fernando. We'll also be hearing from Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene DePasquale. This week, he's going to talk back to school with a school nurse. We're starting off Special Edition by welcoming back Bill Johnston Walsh. He is the AARP Pennsylvania State Director, and he has an update on what they're doing to keep nursing homes and other long-term facilities safe across the Commonwealth. Bill, what's going on? There's all kinds of new things now with COVID and long-term care facilities. And maybe you can just kind of bring us up to speed since the last time that we had the opportunity to talk to you with what's been happening. Exactly. And Paula, thank you so much for having me back. The, um, the, we've, we've been working with the administration, with the governor, with the Secretary of Health, Secretary Levine, over the last few months to really try to get testing to where it needs to be in nursing homes and also to get people back to visiting their loved ones in the facilities. Um, we've, been, we've been really fighting for this. Um, we've come a long way, but um, a lot more needs to be done. We're far from being done. Uh, we uh, now, with the federal government's help, have um, uh, real-time testing machines that are going to be coming down to the state. Um, as you know, um, you know there's about 700 um, nursing homes with, within the Commonwealth, and each each uh, nursing home will receive at least one, possibly two, depending on the numbers um, of these real-time uh, testing machines. There'll be toolkits, uh, testing kits that go along with them that, that do the testing themselves, and this will allow. Um, these facilities to have real-time testing, <clears throat> excuse me, within, within 15 to 20 minutes, they will know if someone has the virus or not, so that they'll be able to come in. As of right now, the testing, as you know, takes 24, 48, even, even longer, uh, 24 hours, 48 hours or longer for, for people to find out. That's not helping us when you have staff coming in and out, when you want to have visitors coming in and out, when you have people uh, delivering supplies to the facility coming in and out, um, and that is just... Um, you know, not where we want to be because, uh, as you know, 67% of the deaths that are occurring right now in the Commonwealth, and this has been for the last six, uh, six months or so, and it's been slowly growing, 
um, have been in nursing facilities. And so it's been very, very upsetting to see that. And we want to continue this fight to make sure that we get the real-time testing that we need and the, vis and the visitors getting back into the facilities. I'm also seeing more information about nursing homes and other long-term care facilities that are actually going above and beyond in order to come up with ways that people can come in. Uh, I know I, I think I saw an, uh, a commercial for one of ours here in Northeast Pennsylvania where they've actually constructed a box where you can come in and you can sit down and it's got a plexiglass on one side, but you can still at least see your loved one, whether you can't have any kind of contact with them. Have you been hearing about things like that where, where more nursing homes are, are really thinking of different ways in order to be able to get people at least almost back together? Yes. I, I, give, I give the nursing home industry here in Pennsylvania so much credit. They have been doing an outstanding job during this whole pandemic, trying their best to be able to keep people healthy, but then also being able to keep their loved ones coming in. So you're right. I, we've heard stories of, of that, people um, uh, having the plexiglass. We've heard um, stories of, of loved ones being able to, to visit outside. You know, obviously the walk-up window piece that has been happening, but also uh, those that have been able to get into the facility wearing, wearing their masks, wearing their gowns, um, We've had we've we've seen people uh, construct or heard about people we haven't seen it but heard about people constructing these where you put your arms in through like mm. so you do have you have the plexiglass but you put your arms in so you can at least hug hug your loved one you know which has not happened in months and we are trying to change that. One of the other things and and you mentioned um, Dr. Levine earlier uh, the fact that there has been now compassionate caregivers. In nursing homes, yep. have you heard anything about that? I have. Um, that just happened this past week. They came down with guidelines. So we, the, the compassionate care obviously is different from a visitation because this is someone who's going to come in and obviously, you know, help feed the person, uh, be able to come in and have conversations with them, help them with their daily uh, activities of daily living. In order to do that, they have to have a, a negative uh, COVID-19 test with, within the last seven days. They have to wear a mask and they have to have a, a temperature test uh, at the same time. Um, the, 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 uh, the thing that's concerning to us, and, and we are so excited about this, but again, it goes back to the testing and this real-time testing that we need because 30% of those with the virus are asymptomatic, 30%. Right. So you can have, you can have someone that um, works there, goes back uh, into the community with their families, which they should be doing, and then the next morning coming back in, um, and if we don't have these real-time tests, being done to everyone, um, which is not the case right now, and it doesn't look like it's going to be the case in the near future because it depends on where you are in the state with regards to if they're going to be doing testing every month, every week, or every or twice a week. Um, so uh, that's the other thing. We think we believe at AARP that uh, real-time testing should be going on on a daily basis, not once a month, not once a week, um, but on, on a daily basis. That was another thing I wanted to ask you about because, again, there have been reports in different areas of different things happening. So it's not like it's all under one umbrella. Again, it's another one of these you can kind of decide what you want to do depending on where you are. So, so basically what the state is doing is that they are following CMS, the, the, center, the Federal Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, 
um, they are following their testing guidelines through CMS. And what CMS, and, and to me, this is a baseline. This is this is not where we want to be. The, the baseline is they're going by the new COVID-19 cases in the county. So if you're under 5% in that county, then you don't have to test, like in the facilities, you only have to test someone every four weeks, every month. Which um, And then if you're 5 to 10%, which is more moderate, it's once a week. And if you're high, which is 10% or more cases within the county that are coming in, then you do it twice a week. But again, you know, like I, like I mentioned before, that 30% of those with the virus are asymptomatic. You know, people are going in and out of the facility, and these are the most vulnerable uh, people amongst our population, and we cannot be playing with their lives. Uh, and, and it doesn't take much. It takes a little bit of money. We understand that the nursing homes need, need help with regards to this, but the, but the federal government has dollars. We, we know that the, that, uh, the last uh, federal wave of dollars that came down to the state, the governor is still sitting on about $1 billion, and we're asking that a, you know, a couple hundred million of those uh, dollars go towards uh, this testing so that we can get people back in these facilities and back to their loved ones that they care so much about. Also, what happens, because we, we hear so much about in the facility, but there are cases where people are going to be there for a limited period of time, and then they may be discharged. So is that also coming into play now where they're looking at people that will, again, they're still vulnerable, but now they're going to be going back out into the community, and who knows? Maybe they may have to come back again. Do you think the, the testing would also help in that regard? And, you know, could it be followed up on? I mean, there's just, it, it just becomes such a, a slippery slope when you have people of such conditions that are, whether they're being exposed one way or another. That's exactly right. Yeah, so, so there are, there are individuals, um, as we know, uh, in nursing homes, there's long-term residents. But there are short-term residents that, that are in facilities um, around the Commonwealth, and they are coming in and out. You're right. Sometimes, I'm not saying it always happens at all the facilities, but it's a revolving door. You know, um, you're, you're in there for either rehab, you're in there to be able to um, get better because you had a fall, um, or, or your family couldn't take care of you right at that moment in time, but then, then they're able to get things in place and they want to bring you back home. So, yes, that is happening. And, and again, this testing needs to be done so that, those that are leaving, going into the community, are not going out with with the virus, uh, unbeknownst to them or or their family, and then you know spreading it out in the community, or vice versa, them coming back into a facility and not realizing it, and the testing is not done on on a timely basis, and then they're then they're being able to spread it um, throughout the facility. So yeah, that that is a concern of of ARPs, and, and, and it should be a concern of everyone, both both in the federal and state governments as well. Now, obviously, we're talking about AARP being involved in the nursing homes, but as well as, have you been hearing from other older residents who are not in facilities that still have the same kind of concerns with people who maybe, again, they have to have groceries delivered, they have to have medicines. I know that a lot of times you can leave it outside, but again, you have a lot of different mobility and communications issues with elder with the elderly population. And I'm not just talking elderly, elderly. I'm, I mean, you know, people who have concerns, like you said, you might have to go in for rehab or something to that effect. Have you been hearing from them as well? We have. 
um, we, you know that the, the, the population that we look at, especially those, and you're right, there are some younger individuals as well, but, but those 65 and, and older that have underlying conditions, um, whether they be heart ailments or lung issues, um, they are scared to death. Um, we've, we've heard from our members that, you know, they aren't going out. So even though they're not in the facility, they're, they're almost in lockdown in, in their homes as well. Uh, because because they are just afraid to go out and, and, and catch the disease and then and then die from it. Um, so so the bottom line is yes, we, we are working with other organizations. Uh, we're working uh, with uh, other other uh, aging organizations around around the Commonwealth. But we're also working obviously with the the uh, the for profit nonprofit nursing homes as well. Um, and we're working with uh, the governor, working with his team, um, working with the attorney general's office. We're, we're working with the whole of individuals to make sure that we can fight this pandemic, we can fight this virus, and we're putting all of these pieces in place. They're going to be able to, whether it's, whether it's the PPE with, with masks, uh, both in facilities and outside of facilities, people wearing their masks whenever they can. You know, I try to tell people, I'm like, listen, you know, I know you're not worried about yourself, you know, because I, I have right. a, a lot of friends that are saying, why am I wearing a mask? I'm fine. If I get it, I'll just, I'll just deal with it. I'm like, you know, that's fine for you. I go, but think of your grandmother. Think of your parents. I said, I said just wear the mask when, when you're out and about so that you're not spreading the disease. You know, you may not be worried about yourself, but you should be worried about, about others within the community and within your family. Bill, anything that you would like to leave with our listeners today? Um, yeah, uh, the, the bottom line here is ARP is fighting on behalf of our 1.8 million members as well as all, all uh, Pennsylvanians. Um, if there's, uh, you know, please go to the AARP.org website, uh, AARP.org backslash nursing homes, and, and you'll be able to get a whole bunch of information about how to protect yourself and to protect your loved ones. All right. You'll keep us updated, right? You got it, Paula. Thank you so much for, for having me on again. Thank you, Bill. We'll talk with you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Coming up next on Special Edition, Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale talks with Lori Kelly. She's the president of the Pennsylvania Association of School Nurses and Practitioners about keeping kids healthy. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. Schools back in session, and today, the Pennsylvania Auditor General, Eugene DePasquale, is speaking with Lori Kelly. She's president of the Pennsylvania Association of School Nurses and Practitioners about student health. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Eugene DePasquale here, Pennsylvania Auditor General, and this call is in the afternoon because we're here with Lori Kelly, who is the, you know, a lot of times we do these at noon, but this one had to be after the school day. Why Lori Kelly? Although, you know, I, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but Lori Kelly is the president of the Pennsylvania School Nurses um, Association, one of the, and, you know, always an important organization. And certainly Lori, as a school nurse, certainly we all thank her for what she does for kids and the professional staff in, in her region and all across Pennsylvania. But as we all can imagine, this um, uh, beginning of this academic term, across Pennsylvania, perhaps one of the more important organizations um, in Pennsylvania, perhaps one of the most critical junctures in the history of our Commonwealth for school nurses and the vital role they will have played and will continue to play to try to make sure that our kids are getting quality education, but doing it in as safe an environment as possible. So, Rory, thank you so much for what you do and taking time 
out of your busy schedule. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you having me here. Thank you for the opportunity. Lori, why don't you give people a little bit of, of background about yourself and, and the organization of the School Nurse Association, and we can talk a little bit about some of the dynamics that are certainly happening um, this fall across Pennsylvania. Sure. So the Pennsylvania Association of School Nurses and Practitioners, uh, we have about 1,200 members across the state. Our membership has actually grown during COVID because we've offered things, uh, free education and Zoom meetings with our members across the state so that we can um, generate ideas and troubleshoot and collaborate as nurses across the state. Our parent organization is the National Association of School Nurses. Um, and they've put out a lot of guidance before even our state has put out guidance. They actually worked with the CDC to create the guidance that they put out. So our organization, along with our parent organization, serves as a resources to school nurses across the state. And it's absolutely fantastic for me because I get to attend the Zoom meetings that occur with our members across the state. We hold them regionally. So I can hear about great ideas that school nurses are enacting in their school district, as well as concerns or questions that they might have. We've developed a really nice relationship with the director of the Division of School Health within the Department of Health. She is absolutely fantastic. And we've uh, communicating with her and that has been very helpful and been able to get information from our members to her and vice versa. So that has been helpful. I myself have been working in school nursing. This will be my 18th year as a school nurse. I've mostly done secondary, but I have in my career had an elementary building. And I've also covered Catholic school in my career too, because as you know, in Pennsylvania, the public school school nurses are required to cover um, mandated services for folks in private and parochial schools within the school district's borders. Um, or obviously we all know what's happening with COVID and, you know, depending on what region the state and even what region the country, the caseload is different. Just as a 40,000 feet, before we get into the, you know, what parents and students should be thinking about, you know, and what the school nurse are going through or, or potentially going to be going through, from 40,000 feet, were the school nurses involved in sort of helping the Department of Education develop a plan for going back? It seems like most schools are going with a hybrid model um, and with, with if certainly the ability to go all virtual, if that's what a parent chooses for the child or what, a, what the student chooses if they're older. As, as, were the school nurses involved in that? What's your overall take on that? I know you generally, uh, without putting words in your mouth, generally feel good about where the Department of Education is on the guidance they've offered. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the school nurses have had wonderful opportunities. Myself and a couple other members of our board, Cheryl Pfeiffer and Shanessa Rosé, were able to sit on a task force that was created by multiple organizations, the school boards organization, um, small schools, uh, the PSEA. We were um, involved in that guidance. In addition to that, we were allowed to testify to the House um, Education Committee about some of our concerns. And in addition, um, we were able to communicate to the director of the Division of School Health, who was then able to communicate that to the division, to the Pennsylvania um, 
Department of Education. So I know that um, the Division of School Health has been in communication with the Department of Ed and through that department, we've been able to get our concerns, ideas, questions to the PDE. So I feel like we have had a voice in the state and also with other organizations that have put out guidance to the schools. Now, coming back to like the actual day-to-day -day life that, you know, parents, students go through, what are some of the things that they need to be considering uh, whether a child should actually go to school or they should alert a school where there may be a potential COVID situation? One thing that I think we've all learned from this is whether it's COVID or not, is that we all need to be a little bit more responsive that if we're sick, not going into the workplace, you know, a lot of times like, you know, the American ethos is, oh, just tough it up, you know, you know, whatever. Now we know, okay, certainly with COVID and the fear of spreading, I think we've become more aware of that. That certainly should apply to schools as well, with beyond just COVID. Is that correct? That is true. Um, parents right now actually are mostly um, in most districts expected to check in with their student in the morning, be sure that they're not sending their student to school with a fever or other symptoms. Um, if there's any question at all, I would ask parents to contact their physician or their school nurse and keep their child home. As we know, many children have mild or no symptoms. So students may just have, I was talking to a pediatrician the other day that said that she had some patients that tested positive for COVID and their only symptom was lethargy or they're not very sick. So the parent didn't really think anything. And then uh, they were tested and it came back positive uh, because there it was found out they had a close contact. Um, just let your school nurse know if your child or somebody in your family has had a close contact with a known person with COVID. I think that in order to keep those of us who are able to open hybrid, because not all schools were able to do that, there are still some schools in full remote, um, the better we are about being vigilant and careful, the longer we'll be able to keep kids coming to school at least a couple of days a week. Right. So I think it's going to be really important. I also understand the pressures of being a working parent. I also raised two boys while being a school nurse. And sometimes it's really challenging because you know there's something going on, you need to be at work, but your child is exhibiting um, symptoms of being sick. Unfortunately, in this climate, there's no decision to be made that has right. to take priority and the child needs to be at home because otherwise we risk an outbreak which would ultimately potentially close the schools. Yeah, I was gonna say, there, uh, regardless of what we may have thought in sort of the pre-COVID lifestyle we had, we're now really dealing with the situation is that if you push it and it is COVID and there's an outbreak, you're not just, you're not, your child is not just staying home for two weeks. You're talking about shutting down the school for perhaps the rest of the term. Potentially. Depend yeah, right, right. Potentially, that's right. Depending on what the guidance from the health department is and what the policies of the school districts are and following the PDE guidelines. But the potential is there. The guidance is there, you know, right. for when it's prudent to close schools, even for a 14-day period, if there are so many cases. So we really need to be good stewards 
of each other and our community so that we can keep things going as long as possible and hopefully for the whole school year for you know for those of us who were able to open in person um without experiencing an outbreak that is the goal right to get everybody here without experiencing an outbreak and i think that the governor's mask mandate is important and will help and um i know there was a lot of concern about that but i have to tell you when i'm out at the grocery store when i'm out at the park when i was at the outlet mall even little ones even little ones that look like they're in kindergarten are wearing masks and doing a really great job. And I think it all starts with the adults in their lives. If right. we have a positive attitude about the mask, if we have right. an attitude like we're protecting our friends, we're protecting our family, kids really can right. rise to the inconvenience of wearing a mask and following the rules. It's all about the tone we as adults set for the kids in our lives. Yeah, to me, of all the problems we face in the world, if we can make things a little better by wearing the mask and keeping our neighbor and our loved ones a little bit safer, then wear the mask. I mean, it's literally not that hard. And I know with kids are going to play with it and stuff like that. And that's where, like, you know, we're all just going to have to do our best, you know, whether it be as a parent or or a loved one um, or certainly friends. You know, just, you know, we know kids are going to play with it. We know that. But that's not a reason to give up on it as well. So Exactly. Nothing is perfect in a school because yeah, right. beings aren't perfect. So right. we do the best we can. We educate the kids. We have a positive attitude and things will go how they should. At least that's the hope. <laughs> Hopefully that was a good sneeze technique there. <laughs> it was a good sneeze technique. Very impressive. You're using hands. So al allergies though, by the way, allergies, everybody. Um, so um, look, the way this works is Gary's our, as we jokingly say, our faceless uh, Facebook monitor here. So I can't see him. You can't see him. But he uh, is the one out there seeing what questions may be coming in from Facebook and our other social media means. So, Gary, let me turn it over to you to see if there are questions for Lori and me from anyone that's out there watching on in social media world. Thanks, General. Hi, Lori. Nice to speak with you today. Thank you. Uh, First question, uh, what are some of the things that you would like parents to go over with kids before they send their kids to school each day? That's a great question. Um, I'd like them to go over proper sneeze etiquette as just uh, given an example by, uh, by Eugene, it was fantastic. I would like them to go over how to use hand sanitizers. Schools are gonna be using hand sanitizers this year because they are shown to be effective. How do you wash their hands effectively? How to remove their mask appropriately for when they're taking lunch? Where to set their mask when they're having lunch? Like throwing their mask on the floor isn't going to be great for them to put that mask on. Have them you know, discuss when you have your lunch, put a napkin down, put your mask on top of the napkin so that when you put your mask back on, it's not uh, contaminated. Practice not playing with the mask. Um, me, myself, I have a habit of touching my face. So I find myself constantly telling myself, oh, no, don't touch your face. And I think practice with your kids so that they feel comfortable with it. Practice wearing the masks because until you get used to it, it can be uncomfortable to wear a mask. But if you can practice with your kids and get them used to it, 
they'll be all set when school starts as far as being able to wear the mask for the day. Speaking of masks, is it a good idea that parents send extra masks along with their kids just in case one breaks or it gets lost? Sure. I mean, uh, it's like anything else. Um, I had boys, so I won't speak for girls, but it seemed like if my kids could lose an item, they would. Um, so extra masks are great. I also know that many school districts are having a supply of masks for kids who forget their masks or kids who lose their mask or soil their mask. So if your kid does have an issue with their mask, I wouldn't panic about it. The school most likely has a supply for those occasions at school. However, an extra mask tucked in the backpack is never a bad idea. I always have an adage, I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Isn't that the truth? So speaking of personal protective equipment like masks, what are you hearing from your members? Have Pennsylvania schools done a good job getting supplies in? Is there enough to go around? Um, I think that varies widely, wi widely, excuse me, across the state. I have some colleagues that have told me that they have not gotten the PPE that they need. My school district has done a fantastic job. I have N95 masks, I have face shields, I have gowns. But there are certainly districts across the state that weren't able to get the PPE in that their nurses need um, to be safe in the health offices. It sounds like there's still some work to do. Uh, on the whole, have school districts, we have 500 of them around the state, there are a lot, so it's impossible to generalize. But on the whole, have school districts been doing a good job giving, putting their nurses, giving them a seat at the table when making decisions about what instruction's gonna look like this fall? Again, that is varying widely. I have some nurses that are telling me they're in every meeting and they have created an administrative position and hired another nurse so that the nurse can be at all the administrative meetings to districts where the nurse is completely frustrated, where they say, you know, they say I'm on the committee, but I've not been invited to a single meeting. I've given them my list, but they are looking at different supplies. I encourage this, but it doesn't seem like I'm being heard. So again, that's something that varies widely within the state. And if you're seeing plans, if you as a parent are seeing plans from your district that you would rather see a different plan, it's a question I would ask. How involved has your nurse been in creating these plans in um, advising on these plans. I, I think it's a reasonable question. I think parents, are, another reasonable question is how, how many hours in a week is your nurse at the building? I know that Pennsylvania is very lucky that we have a ratio. Many states don't have a ratio at all. Um, in Pennsylvania, for every 1,500 students, there must be a certified school nurse. However, that does leave some districts without a nurse in the building full time, uh, largely in the private and parochial schools that, um, that we cover. Um, we don't provide a, a certified school nurse every day if they're, you know, if we cover the school in a lot of cases. So if you have concerns about that, I'd ask the administration, do you have a nurse in your building every day? Um, I think those are fair questions for the administrations of your school district or if you're in a Catholic school, 
um, your or private school, the private school administrator? I think that's a fair question. So we talked a little before the show. You've been a school nurse for 18 years, but you also worked directly in healthcare for 10 years prior to that. So 28 years of nursing experience. Talk to your colleagues now. Tell them why they should consider pursuing a career in school nursing. Honest to gosh, it's the best job I've ever had. I've worked med surge, I've worked ICU, I've worked hospice. Um, this job provides the opportunity to educate kids, which is my favorite part of the job. Um, it's a little bit of public health. It's a little bit of direct care. It's a little bit of um, mental health. It's collaborating on multidisciplinary teams. Um, it's having an impact on kids' lives. Um, it's one of the most rewarding positions I've ever had. Um, you get to see kids grow. I have, you know, you can see kids grow if you're in elementary school from the time they're in kindergarten to fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. Um, I used to have a middle school and a high school. I could see kids grow from when they were in sixth grade all the way up to their senior year and see how they grow and mature and the impact that we can have on their lives. I, um, it's the best job I've ever had. That's a wonderful testimony. One final question. There's some discussion in some other states about mandating flu shots for students this year. Do you find it a, a good recommendation for parents to consider giving their kids a flu shot this year, even if they haven't in the past? I think everybody should have the flu shot this year. And um, part of the guidance that came out was that school districts should leverage their um, influence within the community to encourage flu shots. And in fact, in my district, we've arranged for a drive-through flu shot clinic um, where families can come. We're partnering with a local pediatrician and they will vaccinate everybody in the car for the flu uh, as they drive through so that it is safe for social distancing. Um, I really believe any way that schools can encourage families to get the flu shot this year, they should. All vaccinations are important. It's really important to be up to date on all your vaccines. Um, the last thing we need is a measles outbreak or a pertussis outbreak or um, severe flu outbreak in the midst of COVID. In my career, I have seen outbreaks of pertussis in districts I've been in. And so I don't wanna see that on top of COVID. So it's extremely important to get every uh, mandated vaccine that there is and to get the flu shot this year. Unless of course you have a medical reason not to get it, unless your doctor advises you not to get, to get the, the flu vaccine. Thank you, Lori. One final comment from Facebook user Judy. She says school nurses are some of the hardest working people in the school building. So kudos to you. And thanks for your responses. I'll hand it back to the Auditor General now. Thank you, Lori, for, the, for, uh, for your time and certainly to all the questions out there and certainly the comment at the end. But I think we all share that as a thank you to Lori and so many of our school nurses all over Pennsylvania that do a tremendous job looking out for our kids and our public health. Um, Lori, thank you for taking the time um, to answer these questions and share your thoughts about uh, as we uh, as the school year begins up again. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for all that you do. You got it, Lori, and and stay safe. And uh, everyone that is out there again, um, you know, please uh, be safe, um, be smart. Remember, we are all in this together, um, and the school year is certainly. Uh, 
a key point in that. And that is we all want our kids to get the best education possible and to be as safe as possible. So let's all do our part to make sure that can happen. And everyone else out there, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day, and we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Don't go away. Welcome More back special to Special Edition to edition. Come. Coming up, Dr. Rajiv Fernando will be talking with Intercom's Doc Medic. But first, Intercom's Rocky and Lissa caught up with Amy Everett's from the Women's Resource Center. I've got Amy Everett's from the Women's Resource Center on the line now, and we had them on when quarantine first started. And Amy, you were saying then that your hotline was virtually silent because people were trapped in their homes in these abusive situations, so they didn't feel like they could reach out. But now that we're in a more fluid stage of this pandemic, you're noticing a new trend. What are you noticing now? Well, it's like you said in the beginning, a lot of people were just stuck at home with their batters and maybe didn't have the opportunity to get out. And now our phones are ringing off the hook. Um, I think a lot of it might be because of state restrictions or are lessening. People are getting um, more comfortable in a, in a pandemic world. And, you know, I think it's just, we want people to know that we're here, you know, and we've been doing everything we can to get the word out that our services, um, you know, we offer everything from uh, court accompaniment to counseling, to safe housing, and that they don't have to stay in a situation that they're not safe in. And really, so it's, the, it's, it's a test for any relationship, let alone one that maybe has a background in, in some kind of physical abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, statistically, we know that only about 10% um, report domestic abuse to the police, and that's in a non-pandemic world. Wow. Mm. Two questions for you. If someone, first of all, is in an abusive situation, what's the best way and quickest, easiest way for them to get a hold of you? And then is there anything we can do as the public to help you guys out in your efforts of helping them? Sure. The best way you can get in touch with us is to call our hotline, which is 1-800-257-5765. That will put you um, in touch with one of our, our counselor advocates Great. and we'll get you the help you need. And that is 24 hours and confidential. It's a confidential hotline. Excellent. And as far as what we need, we always need the public support. Um, please visit our website. Consider making a contribution. Um, one night of safe housing and last year in Lackawanna County and Susquehanna County alone, we provided 15,000 safe nights wow. of housing in just one year. So um, every dollar goes a long way. We ask, you know, that you consider making a contribution and also just learning about what domestic violence and sexual assault looks like so you can help yourself or help a friend. Well, Amy, God bless you and everybody at Women's Resource Center. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time with me. Anytime. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day. You too. And once again, Amy reminds us that hotline number is 1-800-257-5765. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Rajiv Fernando and Intercom's Doc Medic has the questions for him. Hey, good morning. It's uh, Dr. Fernando from New York. How are you? Dr. Fernando, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for coming on again. So uh, I got like four questions, no, five questions I want to ask you, because you know the answers to pretty much everything here. Um, one of them that just came up the other day, I did want to ask, somebody was saying, is there a difference between like if you're just going to get 
your COVID-19 test done. And is there a difference between a regular test and one where you're showing symptoms? Uh, absolutely not. It's the same test. And I think that's the whole, uh, that's what we really need. By screening asymptomatic uh, carriers, that's like the most important thing, which is what New York has done so well. And now we, we have only 1% zero positivity. When you see a, a, when you see a state or a, a city with 85% uh, positive, mm-hmm. that actually tells you that, uh, that tells you that they're just screening the infectious people and they're not scr- uh, testing the asymptomatic. Yeah, the story I heard, which is weird because it didn't make sense to me. Somebody goes, oh yeah, when, it, when you tell them you have symptoms, they go in deeper with the swab. And if you're just going there to get tested, they only go in a little bit. So I'm like, well, let me ask no, the pro. No, no, in, <laughs> Inaccurate. I can tell you that, uh, you know, when I got screened, the, the lady put the... Uh, the uh, the swab it touched it touched my brain so yeah. I could tell you with certainty. <laughs> That's what I hear. Um, in your opinion, because this is the big thing, school's about to go back here in Pennsylvania too. Um, do you think it's a good idea for kids to go back, or should they be doing school from home? I I think it's a good idea for schools to go back. Um, you know, we have to start going, but I think it, it'll be like county to county, and you know. Uh, the real thing is, I mean, social distancing. The single most important thing is masks for me and disinfections of the classrooms. And, you know, people wearing masks. I mean, we have to adopt a universal policy uh, with masks. That's the only way we're going to keep schools uh, safe. I know we saw, where was it, in Georgia the other day? It was that high school where the girls ended up putting that video out where they're showing everybody cramped My into goodness, the hallway. Right? That's, yeah. uh, that's insane, really. Yeah, and then what? They got no, At that point, there were like nine kids the next day or day two that started testing positive yeah this is the kind of thing i mean if we're we're reopening there's no slam dunk answer to say you know what let's reopen everything is going to be okay everything's not going to be okay if we don't uh, you know take over this the masks and uh, we have to have a universal policy against that because remember the kids when they get infected they take it home to their parents elderly who can really get uh, very very sick so i mean i think it's a good idea to open schools but very very cautious and also, I think uh, um, the the school should be able to make modifications. Um, if they're seeing something new or they're not happy about something, slide back or change it. It's going to be very challenging for schools, but I really think uh, opening up schools is a good idea. Yeah, I mean, my wife's a school teacher, and she said, you know, she's looking forward to going back. But I know there are teachers that, like, well, I don't want to be in the classroom, that kind of thing, which is going on. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Pennsylvania is very weird because it's such a big state that there are areas that, you know, have zero people testing positive certain counties. And then, you know, our county right here, Luzerne County, uh, I think we had 25 again, which, you know, in the big picture, when you look at a big city, doesn't sound like a lot. But for this area, that was a high number. No, it is a high uh, high number, and definitely, like I mentioned, it should be open based on county to county. And like you said, uh, for pe- uh, for Pennsylvania, you just can't have a blanket statement and say, you know what, just uh, just open. It's really got to be county to county. Let's take Dallas for example. If there is a county with uh, persistently no infections, they're clean. You know what, I wouldn't have a problem opening something up in Texas as long as community has no infections no spread i mean you should just go for it so that's an important example to say it's really county by county and you know parents teachers everyone has to be in contact it's going to be a lot of work for the school um you know the uh program it's going to be a lot of work between teachers um and uh, parents sometimes the younger kids may not understand the whole 
spectrum of disease, but right. you know it's important for kids also to start wearing masks. It's very important. Like you mentioned in Georgia, people weren't wearing masks, so that's right. the problem. We have to embrace a universal mask wearing. That's that's what's going to keep our schools safe. Doctor, do you have any tips for like parents, you know, especially with small kids who will be going back to school? For example, bring multiple masks or anything like that, or or just you know pretty much just wear the one mask all day. Is that okay? I think that's perfectly fine, and it depends on your economic situation. Traditionally, if you're wearing a mask, we usually use it once a day. But if you're using the clo- uh, the clo- uh, clothing type of mask with that type of material. You know, you can use it again and again, but watch it, or even at the end of the day, you can put it in a in a corner, which is a cold counter, keep it safe over there, and you can reuse it. But um, I really don't have a problem. As long as people are wearing their masks, you can pick the blue mask, what we see pretty commonly, that's uh, try to use that once a day. Uh, the other thing with a blanket statement is if you see a mask that's contaminated, or you see some dirt, or some, some sort of soiling on the mask, take it off right away because at this point you've compromised the safety uh, off the mask, which and people could be spreading disease. So that's very important. Okay. We're talking to Dr. Fernando here this morning. A question just came out in the news too. Uh, Russia announced they have a vaccine. Do you think it's too soon or is it something you, you know, wait? I know we're talking here in America could be November, December, early part of next year. You know, how long do you wait to see what side effects there might be? Very, very unsafe to release this vaccine into the community. Uh, once again, I think it might be something political, but the, the vaccine in Russia, of course, there was some sort of a breakthrough uh, into our uh, software where the Russians, I'm sorry, I don't mean to get political, but they were involved, they were looking into our protocols as well. Right. Uh, but very unsafe, you know, this is, they haven't even gone to phase three trials, which is, you know, testing up to 30,000 people, a large group of people and watching them for side effects. So it's a very, very unsafe thing. I, uh, I don't, I don't advocate for that at all. And politically speaking, not to, I, I feel some people may try to push a vaccine sometime around November third, right. just to say, okay, <laughs> we have a, we have a vaccine. Um, so that's going to be dangerous as well. So remember, we have to go through the phase three, which is you know a month and month of watching. Uh, and, and that's the safest thing for people. I'm pretty sure if you have a, something by the end of uh, October and people say, well, it's going to work, there's already a lot of hesitancy to vaccines in America with the anti-vaxxer campaign. So people are not, the minute you say, well, it's not studied well enough, no one's going to go for this vaccine. Right. So I really think we have to wait the distance. Like I said, you know, we've done really well where, uh, quote unquote, Operation Warp Speed, which is we're really going as fast as we can. But I wouldn't shorten that period anymore. Uh, we should just stick to the six months that we're following in uh, phase three. That's good. Yeah, my wife, it's funny because we're different on it because I always get like the flu vaccine and things like that. And I said, yeah, when it comes out, I'll get it. And she's like, I'm going to wait a while because I want to see if there's side effects or anything. But, yeah, I mean, side effects could be years away if there are, right? Not just a month or two. Absolutely. And those are the kind of things you'll have to make a risk versus benefit situation. Do you want to give the vaccine to someone whose immune system is compromised, they have cancer, or do you say, well, we have to wait for years? And it's uh, it's a risk versus benefit situation. As a physician, I would tell people who are going to get the vaccine, we have a good vaccine right now. Uh, it's, could we have long-term side effects? Of course. We just don't know about it. But what's more important for the patient at this very time? So that's how we're going to go about giving these vaccines.
And Dr. Fernando, who, by the way, is an infectious disease specialist, what, what's the question you get from your friends who are not doctors, by the way, that you know always want to get information out of you? What's the thing they seem to ask you the most? You know, unfortunately, uh, I still get a, a, every day at 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. I, you know, a, a lot of time to answer questions. I get emails, texts, uh, social media. Yeah. So the question I still get asked most, unfortunately, is the question on hydroxychloroquine. And I, I just don't know what else to say, really. I mean, there are countries all over the world have, have said this. We've had some unnecessary um, footage on TV, people standing like, uh, you know, Supreme Court steps. And I just I just don't know what to do. It's just uh, it's just a hard. I have no more energy to answer these questions. As a matter of fact, I have like a cut, copy, paste answer for <laughs> Dr. Thorson. because I I really don't have anything else to offer. And the question is, why would you? use hydroxychloroquine, which is a questionable uh, efficacy, when you have slam-dunk treatments like remdesivir and dexamethasone, we know this works. So when the patient comes into the hospital and they need to be put on ventilation, it's not a time to say, well, this is work, well, this is not going to work. No, you go for standard care that we know for sure will work. So... I mean, that's the top question I get asked every single day. That's funny. Well, talking to Dr. Rajiv Fernando. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. Of course. It's always wonderful to be on your show. And, you know, giving public information is the most important thing in my job. So thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.